This episode of Equity is presented by MetaLab. MetaLab designs and builds products for companies that are expecting massive growth. Slack, YouTube, and Uber are just a few of the startups that hired MetaLab on their way to becoming household names. They're the product agency that helped design the original version of Slack and the YouTube player that is still in use today. Last year, MetaLab collaborated with the founding teams at Neuralink and Pitch. Unlike a lot of other agencies, MetaLab doesn't claim to be full service. They do one thing and they do it really well, and that's digital products. If you're ready to build a product for millions of people, then visit metalab.com. Tell them TechCrunch Equity sent you. Hey, everybody, stick around after the show. We have TechCrunch's Jordan Crook here to tell us all about the upcoming early stage event for founders, and I think she has a discount code, so we'll see you there. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined this week by Danny Crichton, one of TC's fine managing editors. Danny, how is life? Good. My three martini lunch has been delayed because we're having a food episode, so I'm a little cranky, but looking forward to it. If you're going to drink that much, food never killed anybody. And we also have Natasha Moscarinas here. Natasha, how are you doing? I'm here to tell the Equity listeners that Kirkland brand White Claw Slaps, and they should go for that <laughs> instead of their martini because um, it's just better for you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that's also false. Uh, but I have good news after all that terribleness, which is that we are going to talk about ag tech today. This, of course, is our Wednesday thematic episode. And I'm excited to figure out how much of our listenership will love this category and kind of emerge from the woodwork because we never talk about it naturally. I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit hesitant about ag tech until I dug into the stories. And it turns out the startups in the space are super, super cool. We're going to talk robots. We're going to talk how to feed chickens in a, in a huge autonomous container thing. And the good news is we have Jonathan Schieber here to help us uh, talk through it. Schieber, you're a climate editor. How are you doing? I'm okay, man. I'm appreciating the woodwork puns from Natasha this morning. It wasn't even intentional, and I love that it came off as a pun. Yeah, you really planted a seed there for what we're going to be doing with the rest of the show. <laughs> we're off to a great start. Let's harvest that joke by talking a little bit about what we're going to get into. We're going to talk about labor. Yeah. So the first company we are going to talk about is called Say So Labor. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. They are a staffing solution for farms and agribusinesses and deem themselves the gusto for agriculture. The thing that they're helping make easier is that there's a visa that a lot of people who work on farms need to have in order to legally be in the country if they're migrating here. Called an H-2A visa. If you think of the H-1B visa that a lot of tech workers from international countries use. This is kind of a one that you can think of is similar, but for people who work at farms. Unlike the H-1B, though, it isn't as capped. It's more how do we make it easier for people to get through that paperwork, stay here legally, safely, and in a way that respects worker autonomy and fair pay. And, and Sheebs, this company just raised a bunch of money. So can you tell us a little bit about how much they raised and from whom? Well, SESO raised $4.5 million from a slew of investors, the most important ones being Founders Fund and NFX. I didn't know Founders Fund put money into ag tech. Is that, is that a new thing, everybody? Or did I just miss prior investments from them? Can we name another Founders Fund ag tech investment? <laughs> I, I can't it, name many. <laughs> John may know one. I, I, it wasn't really an ag tech investment, but Climate Corp was a major Founders Fund company a couple of years uh, ago, which was focused on weather. And, and you know obviously, that's really critical to food production. All right, let's talk about the impact of this funding round on the company, Sheeps. I know they're working with 12 farms today, going to grow that number quite a lot. But how many workers are we talking about, say, this year that Sesso is going to be able to, to interact with? They're currently expecting to bring in around 1,000 workers for the year. 
And it's a pretty fragmented industry. So the largest player in the space is only bringing in about 6,000 right now. I'm going to bring it back to the visa conversation because that's the space that they're working in. I know another one called LegalPad and that works with H-1B visas. For them, I know that their biggest thing they have to deal with is the administration, maybe the previous one more so than the current one. And it's like consistent flip-flopping on certain policies. Within the world of ag tech, like, what is the biggest pain in the butt for a company like Say So Labor? I'm assuming it's the same sort of paperwork issues and the uncertainty around the immigration policy coming from the government. Well, and on top of that, a lot of these agricultural visas are actually very, very short term. So they're seasonal and oftentimes yeah. you have to reapply year after year after year. So it's not one of these things where like in the H-1B, I believe it's three years plus three years. You sort of have this one time like reapplication. You basically have to apply constantly to ensure that your workforce constantly comes in. Obviously, there can be competition between farms as well for the same workers, depending on the particular season, who's coming and who's leaving. So it, there's just a lot of pressure to get these systems highly reproducible in place so that farms have much more reliability. And also they have to be cheaper because an H-1B visa is often stapled to a worker who brings in six figures worth of income. So a company can afford to spend more money on this. In fact, most major tech companies like Microsoft and Google and so forth have teams of people internally that just handle their legal paperwork for the H-1B process. Farm labor is not as well paid as development work. And so you have to find a way to probably scale the cost of these visas to the, I mean, I hate to use this phrase, but economic value produced by the workers, which is an interesting concept. Well, and that's one of the things we're seeing with a lot of companies in the space. So I, I want to move on to another one that's focused, again, on, on labor and labor arbitrage. But uh, Future Acres is working on a, a crop transporting robot. So this, this is in the category of human, aug or, I'm sorry, robot augmented human work. There you go. Yeah. It's not human augmented <laughs> robotic work. Look, give it 10 more years, it's going to be uh, <laughs> human augmented robots. But um, Future Acres is building out a robot called Carry. Similar to the carry mode that a lot of VCs, I'm sure, are looking for in these sorts of companies. But but carry the robot is designed to follow around workers working on farms. I believe this one is in particular is focused on grapes. The robot kind of follows around uh, the workers actually using their hands to pull the grape, which is actually quite complicated for a robot to do. But then the, the robot is basically following that worker around and processing the grapes as they move around the vineyard. And what's interesting here is that they're part of this Ross movement or robots as a service. So Ross, Ross, Ross. You know, instead of paying 10 or 15K up front, farms can actually rent, I guess you, a better term is just to rent the equipment over time to try to defray the upfront cost. So it's a continual cost for the farm. I will say, I dig them a little bit. Sheba, I'm curious, how often do you see robotic companies cropping up in, in the ag tech space? I mean, we have a couple today, so to me, they feel relatively common, but I'm curious if our sample here is, is skewed towards our own interests because we like robots, or if this is a pretty common thing out there in the market. I think there's a cornucopia of robotics startups working in the ag space these days. You're seeing it across multiple categories. So there's two main models. There's one, you can kind of buy these robots and then you'll own them and they can help out your workers and you can be a bit more quick. And then there's the farmwise model, which really is kind of like implemented RAS, which is a terrible sentence now that I say it out loud. But you, they bring the machines over to you and then they execute the labor and then you pay them kind of a fixed rate for it. So you don't have to own the, the upkeep cost, Danny. Well, it's actually even crazier than that, right? If you look at Future Acres and, and Carry, it's actually a price per robot fee, whereas FarmWise is actually going one step further. It's a usage fee. They actually charge per acre that's processed as part of the uh -huh. de-weeding initiative. So it, it, in some ways, it's, it's a huge question of how much you can actually scale up these costs, right? We talk about usage-based SaaS models. Well, now you're talking about usage-based RAS models and ag models. Yes. I just want to point out that, uh, w w how did you describe weeding there? You were like, the de-weeding initiative? I guess de-weeding is like anti-weeding, which is adding weeds. I don't know. This is just evidence that we've been talking in tech too long because de-weeding initiative is not a thing. It's called weeding. <laughs> 
That's what it's called. <laughs> you know, it's not a thing. Uh, usage based RAS. But that sounds uh, like no. something we could publish on Extra Crunch. We could, Apparently, we could... it is it is now a thing. Just to be clear, Farmwise has raised fourteen point five million dollar round back in twenty nineteen, and also put together a five point seven million dollar uh, seed stage investment back in the day from Playground Global. And oh, this is a fun sheeper. Apparently, they're going to raise another twenty million this year. Is that is that a round that we see pretty often? That size in agtech. I, I think that there's a lot of demand right now for agtech deals, especially agtech deals that cross over into climate or sustainability deals. And the argument with the farmwise play is that by using the robotics to distribute the pesticides and insecticides, you can actually reduce the amount that's needed, which protects land from additional pollution or, or over insecticiding. And Shaber, you mentioned in the piece that the category is wide open and it's not because of lack of interest. I was wondering if you could spend a sec on the general VC interest in ag tech right now and why we might not be hearing about it, even if it's getting that interest elsewhere. It is a kind of specialized field. There's a lot of crossover with biotech. On the whole, you're talking about a, a space that really is reliant on very specific technologies, sensors, smart sensors, robotics, processing, image processing, AI, but in a field that typically hasn't been exposed to those kinds of technologies before. So there's a, a growing appetite for it. The costs are coming down and people are realizing that the products are there to serve price-sensitive farmers. Well, one of the interesting things, particularly with Future Acres, is that this came out of a group called Wavemaker Labs, which produced the Miso Robotics hamburger flipping robot, which, hey! which I thought was particularly interesting because, you know, they're now kind of building robots all across the food chain, right? All the way from farm to table, so to speak. <laughs> and so I actually think for far, a farm to grill at, at a minimum. Go. Although there are, you know, they do deliver onto plates and trays these days. So it's basically table. But I, I do think it's interesting to see how much investment and, and folks are now reusing the technologies they're building on the robotic side or on the crop building side across multiple verticals, across multiple areas. It's worth pointing out, by the way, that if you think about the agriculture sector as being technology backwards, you're, you're kind of wrong. I've done a little bit of farm work in my life, and I'm not going to over-index on that. But like one thing that I was surprised to learn, and this was a long time ago, was how self-driving tractors can be. A lot of the issues in self-driving cars are dealing with things that like jump out on the road or like you know other cars. Tractors are much slower and they go in straight lines. And so like they've had GPS driven auto driving for a long time because as it turns out, driving straight lines is very boring as I, I learned. So tractors have figured this stuff out. So farmers have been always searching for yield, searching for savings, searching for a way to make their business a bit more economical because farming's a hard game. It's really tough. So it's great, I think, to see VC money going into companies that could really improve things, including things like yield, Natasha. Looking at Anuvia and fertilizers, there's apparently been some uh, some breakthroughs. So Anuvia this week raised $103 million from a number of investors, including Piva Capital, TBG Art, Pontifax Global Food. And they are on their way to commercialize a fertilizer. So Anuvia's whole play is that they are selling farmers a fertilizer that should give them a better yield than traditional fertilizers. And with the new money, they're going to commercialize that offering. That feels very obvious on why that's a good play to be in. But Sheber, I would love for you to give us the big picture view. How big of a deal is what they're doing? It's an incredibly competitive space. Anuvia is not alone in, in going after this. There's a lot of money to be made because there are a lot of efficiencies that ostensibly can be gained. The real innovations that, that Anuvia has are around creating better ways to control the release of nutrients 
into the ground again with the idea of sort of reducing pollution, reducing the need for ammonium or nitrogen fertilizers, which are themselves pretty environmentally damaging to produce. That's one of the things I thought was really interesting about this company is, it, it, you know, we've gotten a lot smarter about the c- carbon cycle, right? Where does carbon come from? How does it get emitted into the atmosphere? How does it come back? And soil is actually one of the critical sinks for carbon. A lot of carbon can come back into the soil. Um, it can replenish it. Improving that cycle can actually be a win-win for everyone. It can increase crop yields. It can improve the environment. It can reduce damage to other parts of the ecosystem. And Anuvia, that's sort of the sale point here, right? Is that they're both increasing crop yield while at the same time reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And it's sort of this win-win. And I imagine that's what's happening with a lot of these fertilizer companies is we're going from Pareto inefficient items on the technology frontier to Pareto efficient items on the technology frontier. And that's why it's so exciting. I just want to point out that we have some data on how much greenhouse gas emissions it produces that are less. It's 32% less to produce this stuff. That That's, I mean, I would love if it was like 97, but I'll take 32 because it's better than zero, you know? Uh, but we had one question, <laughs> Sheeps, before we jump on to our, our, our last story here, which is this claims like a 500% increase in like the efficiency or something like that. And, uh, we were kind of confused about that number. How could something be so... Natasha, do you want to break down the problem? Well, yeah, actually, I was just like in my head when I was reading this last night was I was like, so you're telling me this piece of soil can produce five times more cabbage than a traditional fertilizer? Or is it a different kind of efficiency? Uh, I, I think it's that the plant is five times as productive. So it, it just means that the plant can grow better and grow uh, larger in the case of a cabbage, I would assume. It's a it's a healthier plant. So is it like a monster cabbage? Yeah, which like yields five times as much stuff. Okay, that makes a bit more sense. But let's move into our, our last story here, which is one that I don't really know how to intro into, Danny. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about turning flies, which I hate, into chicken tenders, which I love. Can you explain to the people how that happens? <laughs> oh, my well, God. I, I was joking before the show that like there used to be this thesis around insect protein, which is which yeah. has kind of died away. I think that obsession, I don't know whether it was... Soylent or something else that sort of got VCs distracted onto other terrible foods to eat. But Better Origin, a company that raised a 3 million seed round led by Fly Ventures, is trying to build out new feed products for livestock. And in this particular case, they're using flies as a protein source for chickens. Today, chickens have a very unique diet, mostly, I guess, corn based. It depends on exactly what chickens you buy, if it's organic or, you know, all of the different adjectives you can get at the grocery store. But the feed is particularly locked in. And so Better Origin is trying to change that, improve waste management. So they're also using a lot of the food waste from farms, from restaurants, to flow back into the chicken feed stock supply. And basically, again, similar to Anuvia, which we were just talking about, trying to improve greenhouse gas emissions, improve the waste cycle, improve carbon capture, basically make everything a lot more efficient while at the same time not emitting more greenhouse gas. So a particularly interesting company. But, but Shiba, I'm curious, how much do you spend time looking at, at feed stock startups? A fair bit. The sustainability thesis sort of encompasses all of that. You're you're getting these bug companies, not just in chicken feed. There's another company, Insect, which grows millworms as a feedstock for fish farms and actually human consumption as well. And they've raised over $100 million at this point. I wanted to add something real quick. Well, one, I'm so happy I'm vegetarian. Feeling great about that choice. <laughs> Have to can't say it enough. Um, Wait two, until you figure out what lettuce is fed. No, <laughs> baby tears. Oh my god. Um, I wanted to bring up one line that Mike Butcher had in his story about Better Origin. The company says its differentiation with competitors is its decentralized approach to insect farming, which I think sounds so badass. And it's just 
basically is a fancy way to say that you can kind of drag and drop these little insect farms into a pre-existing operation the way that he likened it in the story, kind of like adding a server to a server farm. You just drop it in. There's a command line you can use, just put a couple of codes in, and then, you know, you get a new, uh, I, I guess here, black soldier flies, which sound terrible. Yeah, that, that's what I wanted to get to. Yeah, like, literally this, this... feed them to all the chicken, <laughs> and I will not touch it anyways, but I'm happy they're being fed. Why is this so important? Feed is one of these things that are, it, both. It, it, it's tens of billions of dollars to spend a year. But it's also a like durable spend. Like food doesn't go away in any economy. We're always going to buy food. We're always going to buy lettuce. Maybe we cut back our impossible burgers or something like that, which is a topic we're not even getting to in this show. But nonetheless, like we're always going to be eating food. And so feed is extraordinarily important. And so in, in many ways, there's a huge opportunity for these new startups to just buy into what is a pretty profitable, relatively high margin, durable, massive market. And I think that's the potential. Sheeps, you mentioned that there were a bunch of competitors, including we have listed here, Protix, AgriProtein, Innova, Feed, Enterra, EntoCycle, probably dozens more, all different types of insects that chickens can be fed. What else is interesting before we close out the show? Like, John, what else? I mean, we talked about five startups. There's like a thousand in the space. Like, uh, what are we missing? The area where it seems like there's a lot of overlap, especially for a more traditional, I guess, TechCrunch audience, is the computer vision technologies and analysis and data processing that goes into all of the ag businesses. And there's a lot of work around that, too, and a lot of work around identifying and managing and proving out supply chain. And that is also getting automated and identified, digitized in a real way where software is eating agriculture to Mark Andreessen's perennial point. Those are all areas that are going to continue to be attractive for traditional software developers and the enterprise software folks that might typically turn into this program to think about as new business opportunities for themselves should they want to take the entrepreneurial route. Well, there are 7.8 billion humans this year, according to some data that I that I looked up. So that means the TAM here is enormous, as the VCs would love to say. And it is, as Denise says, perennial because I've eaten twice today and I'm going to pull it off two more times before I go to bed. Um, but guys, that has been our quick dig into the world of ag tech. More thematic shows coming up on Wednesdays. We have our main show, of course, coming out Friday morning. In the meantime, be cool, stay safe. Goodbye. That is our show, but we are very, very lucky to have our own Jordan Crook here to tell us a little bit about our upcoming early stage event that I am incredibly excited about. So Jordan, at a high level, what is early stage and how is it different from other kind of TechCrunch events that people might know of? So unlike other TechCrunch events, we don't have a main stage at early stage. It's all breakout sessions all the time. So we have experts across fundraising, marketing, operations, essentially any question that your startup might have asked to be successful, these folks have the answer and they're gonna have plenty of time for audience Q&A. Awesome, and uh, I'm gonna be doing a session with Ryan Azis, the CRO of Zoom, all about how to build a startup sales team. I'm very, very, very excited about that. Uh, Jordan, tell us more, who else is coming? The lineup is insane, dude. So we have Tope Otona. He's the CEO and founder of Calendly. He's going to be nice. talking about bootstrapping, which he did very, very successfully up until recently. We also have Alexa Von Tobel talking about finance for founders, not just how to run your company's finances, but how to manage your own personal finances while you're starting a business, which I think is super, super important. Uh, we also have keys to nailing product market fit with Rahul Vora. Uh, from Superhuman. It should be just an outstanding lineup, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. We have a couple of sweeteners that we have in the mix. So Jordan, tell people in the equity audience what we have for them. So if you buy a ticket to early stage, you automatically get access to Extra Crunch. So it's kind of a double whammy when it comes to things startup founders need to know. And we're offering our equity audience a 20% discount. So if you use code equity at checkout when you're buying your early stage ticket, you're gonna get the most bang for your buck. 
All right, well, it's coming up in just a couple of weeks, so we'll see you all there. TechCrunch Early Stage coming in April. It's going to be amazing. All right, bye.